my goodness, we've got guests. You know what that means. It's another Masterclass episode on Studio Class. Wow, I am so excited. My friend and colleague Dale Trambour is here today to be our Masterclass guest, and I just cannot wait for us to get into it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dale before we get going. And Dale is a Los Angeles-based composer and writer whose music has been praised by the New York Times for its soaring melodies and beguiling harmonies. And they are not wrong about that. Her music does have soaring melodies and beguiling harmonies. And she has written for ensembles such as American Contemporary Music Ensemble, Los Angeles Master Chorale. She's written for Minnesota Choral Artists, Vocal Essence, a whole bunch of places. Uh, she's been a composer in residence at a number of places. She also does a lot of writing. One of my favorite things is she has this book called Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life, which is excellent. Please check it out after you listen to this conversation. Um, in you know, Go visit her wherever you can find her on the interwebs, and her website is daletrumbore.com. And let's get into it. Here we go. Hi, Dale. Welcome so much to Studio Class. You are one of my Masterclass episodes where we invite guests on to talk about all things music and otherwise. And so I would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about you before we get started. Hello, and thank you for having me. So glad to be here. Uh, yeah, so I am Dale Trumbull. I am a composer and writer who lives in Azusa, California, which is 25 minutes-ish away from LA, depending on traffic. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I write a lot of choral music, a lot of vocal music, um, solo and ensemble, and I write for chamber ensembles and orchestra as well. Um, I'm originally from New Jersey, but I've lived in LA now for uh, going on 12 years, I think. Great. A while, yeah. And yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love the musical community here. It's a great place to be. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I we're going to talk about some of those things, but when when I get started with these masterclass episodes, I always love to jump in with your intention. And I I just ask my guests, you know, what's an intention that you're keeping for your music practice, for your composition practice, for yourself right now? Yeah, so I, well, we're speaking at sort of the end, hopefully, of the pandemic, maybe yes. the end is quite, <laughs> we hope. Yes. Um, so I'll, I've been openly admitting that I've had a harder time creating than usual during this time, mm -hmm. just because it's, I think it's easy as a composer uh, to create work when you know when it's going to be performed. Oh, yeah. Right. And when you know who you're writing for, which I'm lucky enough to write mostly on commission, but uh, it's still, it's just been a challenge lately. So my, my mantra lately has been to let it be easy and to just do the thing, whatever it is. Sometimes it's arranging existing pieces. Um, sometimes it's just doing five minutes of work or 10 minutes of creative work. What I, what I think of as work and then doing, um, I can just whatever sparks my interest and whatever feels sort of uncomplicated to me yeah. on a day. I love that. I think you and I had a phone call recently where we were also talking about something similarly and and I was just like let it be easy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we can so so get caught up in 
there's, there's always opportunities. There's always things to do. There's always a checklist of things you could be doing right for any given, any given side of your life. And I think that let it be easy is something that I've also been experiencing during, well, during this pandemic, but also during this part of my career, right. Mm -hmm. Just in general is where I might have been a little caught up in hustle and grind mentality in an earlier part of my life is that ease and flow might have replaced that. I'm wondering if you feel similarly to that with, with your, let it be easy mantra. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way Uh, (laughs) where I, for so much of my career, uh, I think I've enjoyed in a way the sort of the, the pushing to get things to be to a certain point and setting lots of goals and having really concrete ideas about where I want to go and what success would look like, having financial goals, all of those things. Um, and obviously, again, that's been rocked a little bit by yeah. <laughs> an unpleasant way by the <laughs> pandemic. Um, but in general, I, I am now where I have wanted to be for so long. And that's a really great feeling, but it's also a confusing feeling sometimes, yeah. I think. If you're used to that that hustle, that yeah. <laughs> applying for everything you're remotely eligible for, which I did for so long. Right, right. Uh, and and just sort of accepting like, okay, I'm in a new stage of my life. Where does that take me from here? Yeah. And I'm still, I don't even have all the answers to that. I think <laughs> I'm still very much trying to figure out uh, what what success in the future looks like now that I, I make a full-time living from my composing. Yeah. I, you know, have a reasonable amount of performances and score sales and commissions and everything lined up, usually lined up at least a year in advance, uh, which feels really, it feels really great. And also it does require, I think, a sort of recalibration. Would you say that your goal setting practice has changed or maybe how you think about goals? I'm so curious about the nuance of that, even maybe 10 years ago where you were thinking about this time period of your life and you're like, okay, eyes on the prize. I'm going to get there. You know, I'm making, I'm making my income from composing. I have, you know, all of these elements are kind of working together in what I consider my career. And I'm just curious if the practice itself has changed or, or maybe how you think about your goals. Yeah, it's definitely changed. And again, I think it's a lot of movement from concrete things like I want to work with this ensemble. Like I know Mm -hmm living in LA, the LA Master Chorale, who Mm -hmm. they're, you know, one of the best, if not the best chorus in the country. I'm biased because- (laughs) Um, Shout out LA Master Chorale. (laughs) Shout out to the Master Chorale. Uh, But they work with the LA Phil and they're just so good. And for the longest time, I I would go to their concerts and I'd be like, how can I, like, when, (laughs) how? I just wanted that so badly. And now I've worked with them, I think three, soon to be four, or more times. I think maybe there's technically four concerts so far that we've done together. Uh, And like, it feels amazing. And I want to continue that relationship. But at the same time, if that's a name on my checklist that I can, you know, Mm -hmm. put a check next to, then eventually if you go through your checklist, you're you're like, okay, well, now what? Uh, Which is sort of what I've been feeling lately. So I know for me that looks, that shifting and recalibration looks like thinking about the kind of projects that I want to be making now Mm -hmm. and thinking about how those might change. So 
looking ahead to the next couple of years, I'm, I'm probably still going to be writing a lot of the like three to five, four to six minute choral pieces that are sort of my bread and butter yeah, <laughs> for yeah. my income and, and what I love doing too. It's yeah. that comes easily to me, but I also, I just would love to write something for really big forces, like yeah. for chorus and orchestra, uh, something that's longer. I, there's a lot of um, like album length projects yeah. that I'm dreaming of making, like a solo, uh, solo piano piece album for me to record and a piece for uh, a choir that, that got postponed mm -hmm. due to the pandemic again. <laughs> like a broken record here, but no. <laughs> But a piece for concert, a concert length choral piece um, with audience participation in sort of a oh, cool. fun way, I hope, yeah. <laughs> not an intimidating way for the no. audience. I mean, is it yeah. embargoed information or can you give us a little, a little, like, tell me a little bit more about the audience participation? Like what, what yeah. inspires you there? Yeah, so the, the piece is um, I, tentatively called A Calendar of Light. I think for a while I was calling it a calendar, what was it? No, I can't remember. So clearly the title should be A Calendar of Life. <laughs> and the texts are by Barbara Crooker, um, who's a poet that I've worked with a bunch of times, but it's a calendar. So each movement, or there's actually, I think two, sometimes three movements per short movements, uh, yeah. per season, per yeah. month. And then there are refrains that keep coming back. And so the audience will hear the choir sing them first and then sing them and I I did a little micro version of this in a piece yeah. called returning but I just love it's so communal and magical and uh. it feels like it's like that that vibe some people find in church but yes. it's I'm so intrigued by like how do we get that sense of community and and like spirit and magic to get mm -hmm. kind of yeah <laughs> in a secular way like yeah. how do we create that how can I create that as as an artist. I love that. So, I love that line that. of thinking. Yeah. yeah. Just in thinking about those spaces that we inhabit together. And you know, you know that this is a favorite subject of mine. Yes. That yes. that sense of, you know, having grown up in a religious household and things like that. And and you know, my own like spiritual beliefs, but also recognizing that there are some of those feelings about our music spaces that we share, that we have these right communal feelings but also just sacred feelings and it, that that the place is special itself and it helps us kind of mm, commune with with something that's larger than a, than ourselves i think those are just such fascinating feelings to revel in together and i can't imagine i'm just so excited post post pandemic when we can like feel those feelings again <laughs> Same. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. It's going to, yeah. I think we said on, when we talked on the phone a little while ago, like, I know I'm just going to sit in a concert hall and just like cry. Yeah. <laughs> sheer happiness at sitting in a concert hall or any performance space anywhere. Yeah. Well, and I think especially, you know, we've talked about uh, choirs getting that that extra little nudge of like the super spreader label. And, you know, obviously we're supposed to be safe. Like we don't, oh, I'm not advocating for anything beyond that, but I'm, I think it will be even more cathartic because of some of that um, intense feeling about, oh my gosh, we, we had this community in which we made music together and it was it right away, like 
nope, and you're not getting together. There's no, there's no safe way to do this. There's no safe way to get together and make choral music at this point in time. You know, when in March, April, May, 2020, when we were feeling those things. And so I know that I'm feeling even that for the next however many months until until we can have those choral experiences again, I think that's going to feel very cathartic when people are able to sing together. And I'm just, yeah, I'll be there. Dale, whenever you're yes. there, I'll be like, hi, I'm signing up for this. I would love that. Um, yeah, no, I, I do think with choir in particular, there's there was something extra tragic about the beauty of choir uh, I kept thinking of this, one of the last pieces, or actually it was the last premiere I had before everything shut down, mm -hmm. was a piece about the joys of singing in choir written by members of that chorus, a wow. piece of different kind of flight. Uh, and there's a line about breathing the same sleeve of air. And it's, it's <laughs> beautiful, but it's also in COVID yeah. context. It's like, that's exactly what makes it dangerous, yeah. Yeah. but also makes it beautiful to be so communal and to be together so yeah oh again yes. just can't wait for <laughs> more music making exactly. hopefully very soon yes <laughs> Dale I I'm going to take a little bit of a pivot from that which one of the things that I love to ask is um is about teaching a technical skill and usually if I'm asking this to a vocalist you know I might say like what's a technique like skill that you like to teach. And I'm very open to hearing, you know, whichever way you'd like to approach this. And this could be, you know, a compositional technique or a, a hard skill of some sort. But can you tell us a little bit about a hard skill that you love to teach? Yeah, so I have two thoughts and one is for, one is for singers and one is for composers. Cool. And so <laughs> the composing, uh, something I, I love to say a lot to younger composers, especially, or not necessarily younger, but uh, less experienced composers, mm -hmm. when they're writing for chorus in particular, for lots of voices at once, to, uh, is to think about, I call it the composite text. Nice. So it's thinking not just horizontally about cutoffs, yeah. but looking vertically at consonants and S's in particular. Yeah. <laughs> And this is something so many composers don't think about, but if you have an yeah. S cut off anywhere, that's going to apply to whatever word is starting or ending <laughs> around you. And you can get some really terrible combinations. <laughs> oh, I imagine. Wow. Yes. Yes. I haven't thought about it exactly that way. And I love that you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, I'm on a mission to spread the, um, the knowledge of composite text composite. looking vertically for those, those, yeah, yeah. and just carry through, they yes. cut through everything. And like lips becomes slips if you're yeah. S from, if you're multiple lips, right? Like mm -hmm. the S from the last one, then suddenly you're talking about, or you're singing about slipping slips. and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. That's like, there's like profane examples as well. Yes. <laughs> you have to go into, but. We'll put it in are important. Like an explicit tag on this podcast <laughs> just for that. <laughs> Composers, get it. Yeah. So, but I one of the things oh. that I love about that too is uh maybe considering something like vowel uniformity if you're from the compositional side and you're looking at composite text, is if you're wanting that really 
pure vowel sound from the choir is being thinking about like, are they all singing the same vowel? And mm. if they're in like a diphthong or something like that, you know, if you're having some of them move to different parts of the diphthong, then you may not have that very clear uniform sound because they're actually in different vowels, you know? And so could be along the same lines when you're thinking about not only consonants and where they align when you're looking vertically, but what's the quality of the sound that I wanna hear and how does the vowel inform that? And if I'm having them all sing slightly different vowel sounds or if I'm having them sing the same vowel sound, that would, would work along with that composite text idea. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of my, I think a lot about that as well when I'm using yeah. neutral syllables. Yeah. So if, um, like if a, if a line of text ended in the word so, for mm -hmm. example, and I wanted to hold out so at the end, mm -hmm. at this mm -hmm. cadence moment, cadential moment, um, I, one of my favorite things to do is to have the neutral vowel in the background yeah. be a, O. And so that by the time we get to that word that also has that shared uh, vowel sound, everyone is aligned and it does really like it locks in and it's almost like a little magic trick where yeah, like the, we've been preparing to end on that word <laughs> the whole time. And here it is, everyone is singing oh at the same time or ooh or yeah. ah or whatever. But uh, oh, I love that. That's yeah, it's a great like inevitability, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. Yes. I love that's that. awesome. <laughs> Would you want to talk about your, your skill for a singers too? Yeah. So, um, so this has to do with uh, rhythms yeah. and this is, I, I'll use the simplest example, but this mm -hmm. is something that again, comes up in choral music a lot, but applies certainly to singers. Yeah. All kinds of vocal music. Yeah. Rhythms, but it's whenever you have tuplets to split them into, to, to imagine them doubling. So I'll, let me, let me back up for a second yeah. and say, the example I see the most often in choral music is singers who have trouble with quarter note triplets. Mm -hmm. And it's so, they're so easy. It's so mm -hmm. easy to get them accurately. And a lot of conductors will tell you it's, it's not easy and that they're going <laughs> to, they're going to flow and they're going to be, and they're going to be like, you know, dotted eighth note, dotted eighth note, eighth note, yeah. like, da, 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 instead yeah. of <laughs> da, 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 right? Right, right. Um, but if you just think of eighth note triplets, like da, 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 yeah. and then tie them, da, 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 yeah. right? Then yeah. they're going to be even every time. And that applies yeah. to all sorts of tuplets is just thinking like on a, on a beat, reducing them, or this is kind of hard to explain with, <laughs> just yeah. without, like, I want to draw You want to write it. <laughs> Make a little score. Yeah. Um, You're like, everybody grab a, grab a sheet of paper wherever yes. you are right now. <laughs> right out. <laughs> right out some quarter note yeah. templates. Yeah. yeah I think imagining that subdivision. The smallest unit. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's like math. It's like finding a common denominator. Yes. Not to get, not to make it super technical, but I, I really do think if you just find that inner pulse of the smaller subdivision of that, it, and then imagine ties, it's going to be even every time, and even the most intimidating tuplets become manageable. Yes, yes. I think. I think so too. Well, and just being able to understand, you know, when I was working with very young, like beginning voice students, and we did a lot of like rhythmic, you know, like rhythmic learning and just understanding how we break these things down. 
And that ends up being kind of some missing steps sometimes. And you're, and Mm -hmm. too often any sort of musicians in, in their training are kind of taught certain aspects of rhythm, but then the other ones are like, just feel it like this. And so you're not actually sure or certain rhythmic values get glossed over when you're teaching the, how they actually function. So I think too many times both vocalists and instrumentalists end up getting information that's like, yeah, just do the tuplet. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, I'm doing that. Right. I'm doing the thing that everybody else is doing in this setting without getting, you know, they might've missed the, the building blocks of that. So when you break it down, you say like, take that smallest unit and then double it then, and see the ties that's really going to help you understand how to put these three pulse, like these three even pulses or however many pulses, even pulses into one beat or yes. two beats. Or the something same goes for like three against four, exactly. or anything like that. Imagining the greater context of the quarter notes or even the eighth notes, subdividing those into yeah. like yes. 12 and then adding ties or something like it just, it sounds complicated. It sounds more complicated to say it out loud than it is to do it. And the magic of that is once you understand it once, then that sticks with you in a way that I think those, the little rhymes, like the past the... <laughs> Goddamn. Oh yeah. Gosh, yeah. Gosh darn but I'm determined to curse. However, uh, it's fine. Totally it's totally fine. You, this is not <laughs> this podcast, apparently. This um, is a conversation between adults and there might be is. adult language. <laughs> like, um, the gosh, past the gosh darn butter. Like, oh, these, these rhymes that we're taught to like, like you said, to feel the rhythms. I and mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's so much, I think it serves you better in a lot of ways, if you learn how to understand them and then apply them mm-hmm. to whatever context they come up. Yeah. And I will always um, get up on a soapbox and say uh, that I think we can expect the same rhythmic fluency from musicians of all kinds, from singers mm-hmm. that we expect from other musicians, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Singers are musicians. Yes. <laughs> And, and there's no reason why someone who plays the clarinet mm-hmm. has to be more rhythmically proficient than a singer. Like we just should all. Yeah. Or is inherently more rhythmically. Proficient. Yes. That's another part that obviously as a, as a new music devotee <laughs> that I'm going, that I will jump up on my soapbox about time and time again. But, but I, I do love that you're pointing out that it's possible in rhythmic learning it doesn't only come in one version. It doesn't only come in just feel these things. It also, you can break it down. You can look at it, you know, you can look at it mathematically. You can learn these rhythmic values. I think, Dale, I don't know if you had this experience, but I, there were certain rhythmic values that I like, I never ran into uh, in my education time period, you know, that I was then expected to sing later, you know, nested tuplets were just not a thing mm-hmm. I ever did until post-grad school. <laughs> and so there were a lot of things that I rhythmically, I was learning on my own. And, and I don't think that this might be a little spicy, but I don't think that we should only gift that knowledge to percussionists, for example. I agree. <laughs> so unsurprisingly. <laughs> so I think, it shouldn't just be like, oh, figure it out, but it's possible. And I think this is a good forum to share, you know, that it's possible to learn those, learn rhythmic values and have more than just, just feel it be the, 
sorry, I'm making a lot of air quotes, um, the mm -hmm. just feel it in air quotes, be the baseline for how rhythmic learning is done. Yes. Although it is, it's also fine, especially if you're premiering something to, to admit to the composer that you just would like help on yeah. how something, if something's really tricky, if it has nested tuplets, which <laughs> also it's helpful to feel, to start with the outer, like what's the biggest, yeah. like ignore the nest first. Right? Ignore the nest. Ignore the nest. <laughs> and then you <sighs> the nest back in. Uh, but yeah, just to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I love and that. <laughs> Again, that will serve you better than just trying to feel your way through it <laughs> in an ambiguous way. I find that this might be, uh, I'm gonna claim this because it might seem a little unusual, but I think uh, this is also one of the reasons why I do ask composers for midis. If, you know, if I've never performed a score, if it's the first time, there's nothing else. And it's just the notated score and then if they do have a MIDI that they feel like they've listened to it and they're like, yeah, this is a general representation of these pitches and rhythms, like that, that's also one where I can double check if I'm interpreting something incorrectly, or if I might be, if I might be unaware that the prosody or the, the text setting that I naturally would pick is different than the rhythmic function that they're putting on the page. And if I'm a little unaware of that, that MIDI is a good checks and balances situation to kind of go, oh, I might want to talk to the composer about that. Have you thought about doing this rhythm? Or I can check myself and be like, I need to change this or yes. <laughs> do it, do it better. <laughs> right. But, but you sometimes know. your instincts are better too. Like sometimes <laughs> your instincts for like the stress is really awkward the way this is set. And again, you should always, if you're premiering something, you should always feel comfortable saying to the composer, you know, my instinct is to sing it this way, but I will defer to you. But also have you considered like this way fits more naturally in my voice, this way feels more comfortable because ultimately as a, I know at least for me as a composer, I want the performer to feel comfortable. Yeah. And, yeah. and that comfort, of course, there's, there's a natural level of, um, positive discomfort, I think, with just doing new things. Yeah. Right. Where we have to get over that. But in terms of uh something that fits in your voice, in your instrument, I'm always going to choose that yeah. over the alternative. Dale, I'm wondering, do you have an experience where you've had a collaborative relationship like that where you know you took some feedback or or you know gave feedback, vice versa that was really positive that you could just tell us about it. So we have a model for this felt really good, even though we were talking about changing things, either you to your performers or your performers asking you to change something in a score. Yeah, there have been many, many times where that's happened. Um, sometimes it's a practical issue too. Like if I'm writing a choral piece and uh, traditionally, say the bases can go down to, like past a G, but if I'm mm -hmm. working in terms of going low, like down mm -hmm. past that low G. Um, but if I'm working with a high school group, this happened once where uh, the conductor was like, you know, we have a couple, we have like one or two bases who could sing the F that you've written, but they're just not super comfortable. Like they're not all comfortable. And I was like, fine, I'll like, I'll reharmonize it. And the A worked equally well. And yeah. 
now that's how the piece is. Yeah. And I've had that with my friend Jillian Hollis, who's a soprano, who I made a whole album with uh, 10 years ago. We're, this fall will be the- Time flies, oh my gosh. <laughs> I turned 60, our album. Uh, but some of my favorite composing moments of all time have been with Jillian. Yeah. Just writing something and having her be like, like there's uh, one piece to or one song cycle called This Thirst in the Lungs, mm -hmm. uh, where- I wanted to write really high notes for her and she wanted to sing really high notes. And we had a lot of talks about how and where to put the high notes. And so I put them and I'd be like, I don't know if this is going to be cool. Like, I don't know if you're going to like this. And she'd sing it and she'd either be like, yeah, this is yeah. great. You could like, let's go up to a high E here. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I forget Ooh. what the highest note is. Yeah. She can go way up there. Um, yeah. Or she'd be like, this is kind of awkward. And I'd be like, cool. Okay. We're going to rewrite it yeah. and do that somewhere else or not at all. So, yeah. Well, and and I know it's, that you... it's never a bad thing. It's always a positive. Well, and I know that you sing too, but I, I don't think that your voice part is that super high kind of coloratura place. So I think having that relationship together, it just encourages you, especially when you're dealing with a vocal range that isn't maps on completely to yours, that just having some like encouragement of oh I like to approach the note this way or or yeah you can and in fact you can go up another step if you want <laughs> or something like that I think is really is probably really helpful yeah it, it really is and sometimes too there's other things that composers don't think about as much which is if like especially with um Passaggio with with mm -hmm. keeping singers in a range where they're okay passing through it but if you keep them there for a really long time they're not very happy. Yeah. Composers don't necessarily know where that is for every single, every specific voice type. Right, right. Uh, so it's that's where it's really helpful to work with a real person. Yeah. And most performers too are so happy uh, <laughs> when a composer reaches out for advice. Like yeah. I, I've never, I, it's intimidating, I think a little bit, mm -hmm. especially if you don't know the person super well. Um, but to say like, hey, would you mind just taking a look at this and letting me know if it works? So many people are like, yes, I'd be more than happy to tell right. you how to write really well for my instrument. Right, right. Well, and I think, you know, vocalists love having good rep in the world. We're definitely yeah. one of those instruments that has a lot of rep. So I think that's part of it. It's, you know, there's a lot of rep in the world, but anytime you're wanting to add more to it, we really want to make sure that these are pieces that go out into the world farther and farther, you know, not, not just like, I mean, I love a good, Megan can only perform this because it's super idiosyncratic, but I'm not going to be that greedy. <laughs> like I want other people to perform these pieces. <laughs> the irony of that too, though, I found, especially in choral writing is I think I'm writing something really idiosyncratic. And then it turns out actually a lot of people respond to it and want to do it again. Yeah. And I don't know why that is. I think it's because there's a, I, this might not be it, but there's a lot of care that goes into that craft. There's yeah. a lot of like really specific thinking about what works well. And actually you'd be surprised at how many, yeah. I don't know, in, in your case, like how many mezzos do like new music and want yeah. to perform <laughs> like kind of eccentric stuff yeah <laughs> hey there divas real quick thing before we get back to the rest of this episode do you love studio class you can support it now by joining the sybaritic camerata on patreon 
It's just at patreon.com slash mezzoenen, M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. For $10 a month, you can join the listening circle where you get access to bonus episodes, you can make listener requests, and for $20 a month, you can become a Masterclass Scholar. Do you ever wish you could ask our Masterclass episode guests a question? Here's your chance. As a Masterclass Scholar, you're invited to the recording of the Masterclass episodes, and you get to ask your questions during an exclusive Q&A after the taping. So come on over, check it out, patreon.com slash mezzoenen. And now we're back to the episode. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you maybe met and, and, and cultivated your relationship with Jillian, you know, at the beginning of that, because you've had this, this amazing collaborative experience together. But I, I think, especially for both vocalists and composers, that starting that kind of relationship can feel intimidating for sure. Yeah, so Jillian uh, was a friend before we we were working collaborators. Yeah. Uh, she, <laughs> we talked about our, our origin story of our friendship, which is that we were in choir together and she was behind me and she would sort of like make little, like she would mutter comments under her breath. <laughs> and I just started, <laughs> I like thought she was a cool person. Like we had a bunch of classes together and I just started responding to her yeah. comments that were mostly to herself. Uh, yeah. But anyway, we, we I love that. We were friends. And I I think I realized at some point in undergrad that the best strategy for finding people to work with was just to find people that I was already friendly with, mm-hmm. friends or friendly, uh, and that I thought were really talented, and to ask them if they wanted to collaborate. Yeah. Uh, or sometimes they would ask me, but uh, once you get over that fear of asking, then Mm-hmm. A, a lot I had a lot of really good um like working relationships that still exist to this day because I got out of my little introverted uncomfortable with asking bubble yeah. <laughs> and and said like would you guest conduct my uh my junior year choral recital yeah uh, like that conductor is someone I still have worked with multiple times That's uh incredible. Gary Safeman like a trinity college in Texas like, yeah. Yay. So <laughs> from undergrad and, and grad school where all it takes is just being the, the one to make the first move mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's a little like dating like <laughs> you'll get shot down but the the it could yeah it's always worth asking in a polite way I think yes I yeah know. I love that. <laughs> maybe not with dating yeah. <laughs> not dating advice <laughs> Well, probably, <laughs> but actually the, the fact that you brought this up is a beautiful segue into this thing that, that I love to ask about because this studio class podcast grew out of this, the blog that I write, the Sybaritic Singer, and we do a series about called 29 Days to Diva, where we isolate what I call micro actions and micro actions are just like the smallest unit of the task that you need to do. And, and I love talking about this on the podcast and I kind of, I think the segue there was what I would identify as just asking that just put an ask out there. That's one version of a micro action. And the other way that I explain this is also a micro action is not like write a grant because it's too large. Mm -hmm. Like there are multiple parts of that. So the, you know, the, the micro action might be just like revise the narrative 
something like that. So with that in mind, would you talk about a micro action or, or a sort of set of micro actions that have been very val valuable to your experience in your career? Yeah, so one, uh, one thing I did about, I think it's 10 years ago now, um, was email 125 coral conductors, mostly <laughs> cold, mostly cold calling, cold emailing. Uh, and again, some of those, I think 25% of people responded. And then I sent out a bunch of perusal scores. And uh, uh, now looking back, a lot of those people ended up either buying my scores or commissioning me. Amazing. So, but the very yeah. first, the micro action for that because that, when you say it all at once, it's like, that, that was a lot of emails. It's a huge project, yeah. <laughs> really big project. Uh, and I did, I tailored it to each person where I think mm -hmm. I introduced myself, but I also mentioned like, I have this piece that might be a good fit for your choir. But the first thing I did was just make a list uh, or just figure out where I was going to find these people. Yes. <laughs> you have to back that up to all these little different steps. And it started with, uh, one thing I did was look at, other composers who had careers similar to mine, uh, but yeah. were people slightly ahead in their careers and yes. looking at who was performing them, who was commissioning them uh, and just keeping a list of those people thinking, like knowing that, yes, I was slightly less advanced in my career at the time, but if, because my work was similar to these other composers, probably these groups would end up wanting to program my music eventually too. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that can apply that just looking, keeping an eye out for, it doesn't even necessarily have to be something you, you seek out online or you sit down to do consciously, but to always be keeping an eye out for your peers or people yeah. slightly ahead of you, what opportunities are they getting? What grants are they getting? What, what performance opportunities? And maybe then to just keep a list as that comes up, as you see it, as you're at a concert, um, knowing that those opportunities in all likelihood are open to you as well. Right, right. That's that's the micro action there. I love and then that. It, it expanded yeah. into these. <laughs> well, I, you know, yeah. That's so fabulous because that whole project is a conglomeration of micro actions because you didn't have to do it all at once, yes. but but when you put them all together, it creates this very important project that you did, this very important time period for you where it encompasses all of this work. Not only were you doing research about your field, figuring out what might be available to you. You were also networking by like putting yourself out in front of people. You were practicing introducing yourself and like your, your own elevator pitch of sorts and then setting up possible opportunities later. I just love that there's so much in a project like that where you really pulled all of that together, but it comes down to just like, you got to make a list, you know, yes. how do I go about making a huge list? <laughs> like, and then also just the micro action of, I'm sure there were days that you needed to send an email and you were like, oh, I mean, I guess. And then, but you'd set it up already. So you were like, I can do this. I have, you know, I've written an email like this before. I can send another one. Right. Is there anything like that that you experienced during that project? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really big on uh, 
not necessarily automating because it, it I still have to do all the work. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. Although now I, I have an assistant, so there are some things that I can just farm out to her and that's, yes. <laughs> um, but in this case, I like, I wrote all of those emails, right. And right. I adjusted them slightly to each person, but I still had a template and I had my list. And so it became less of, let me put myself out there and experience a lot of rejection and more mm -hmm. just let me fill in my template. Mm -hmm. uh, let me see if I have any connection to this person. Like if we both graduated from USC, yeah. but didn't overlap or something yep. to mention that in the first sentence, just these little tiny tweaks to this template. And then all I had to do was hit send. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it, it became mindless. I'm really big on those moments, uh, even in my composing, mm -hmm. thinking about like putting in, putting in slurs into uh, wind parts or yeah. brass parts or something. I can do that pretty mindlessly and so I'll <laughs> save that or like dynamics. Dynamics yeah. sometimes require a little more thoughts um, formatting. I, yeah. I save those moments for when I know, like I know myself and my process and I know when I tend to get a little burnt out on the piece, like right near the end. Yep. Yep. And, and then I'll just, yeah. So I'll try and do those things I'll save those things for the burnout moments. Yeah. Well, and I think you don't have to think. <laughs> like uh, I I try to talk with my clients about like cutting down on cognitive fatigue. So just getting rid of too many times where you have to make the decision. So you already, mm. when you made the list and you made a template, you didn't have to make it again. You made it once and then you just go to the list and you go, okay, checking this off and <laughs> stuff. And so I think that those are really important. I, I know that both you and I have talked about, about burnout and, and I think I would love for you to mention about staying composed and stuff like that. But burnout was one of those things for me where I realized it was just like working so hard on everything. And I didn't have any systems or, you know, any of that cutting down on cognitive fatigue, things going on in my life. And I definitely needed to make some changes. So <laughs> I think that staying composed maybe came out of a, a similar time period for you? Yeah, it was interesting, actually. So I'd been working on the book uh, for, a year, I think it took a year and a half in total. Yeah. It came out in June of 2019. And I had scheduled this, this book release, which was entirely up to me because <laughs> I was publishing it. Uh, I had scheduled it for a month before my wedding. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And uh, there was, and it, like, in the midst of some deadlines and some premieres, yeah. Um, maybe I could have done a better job with that. <laughs> in retrospect, there was a moment, actually, ironically, where I was writing this book about uh, st staying composed, about overcoming anxiety and self doubt in the creative process. Mm -hmm. title, right, and. I had scheduled so many things for myself that I actually had, like, I wouldn't, it wasn't quite a breakdown, but it was a, a week of just crying on the floor. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. my now husband being like Ben fiance being like, maybe you shouldn't be crying on the floor. Maybe this is a sign that you should like acknowledge that you have had anxiety all your life and like, haven't quite figured that part out. Yeah which again is ironic because I'm, this book is about overcoming that in the creative process, which I do feel like I've, I've nailed. I feel like yeah. I don't feel burnt out. And I use the word burnout for um, just 
now talking about in that in the process of writing a piece, right? Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. even burnout then. That's not burnout so much as just uh, an inevitable moment where I feel really frustrated with the piece that I know mm-hmm. is coming. Yep. Yeah. Where I just need to step away from it or do like really mindless tasks. Yep. But the burnout as a whole, uh, my strategy now and moving forward and after the crying on the floor week yep. <laughs> has been to just like be super mindful of not putting events next to each other. Like that's, I've, I pay more attention to my body now because I, my body will physically break down yeah. if I try too much. I, I inevitably get a cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it happens. It's happened so many times in my life. Yeah. And I write about that in saying composed, how I've learned <laughs> to acknowledge those moments, but it, it really is uh, the worst moments for me where I am so anxious that I can't do anything. It's been because I put so many things around. I have, I'm like going to the airport every two weeks. Like that's yeah. not, it's too much. Yep. Too much. I was looking, I think last week I, I scrolled back to see when something had happened in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I went all the way back to right around that, that time where I was getting ready for the book to be released. And I looked at my schedule and I just felt my, my chest were like, wow. because there was so many, it was like, go to this concert, go to this concert, fly to Indiana, come back, go to another concert, go to rehearsal four days in a row, go to like, get back on the airplane, mm-hmm. <laughs> then go get married. Yes. <laughs> then get married. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, it's so real. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I, I love that. I love that you're very open about about all of the parts of our lives, right? It's not it's not like we have to gloss over being humans, and um, and so just when I have people listening to this, it's like you're not alone. We've cried on the floor, like everybody does it at a certain. We've all point. cried on the floor, right, like <laughs> and and if you are experiencing a a thing where you've overscheduled yourself, like you're also not alone there. And I'm hoping. Even just for me personally, Dale, can you tell me about some of the work that you might have done to maybe release yourself or let go of the need to be showing up in all of those places uh, so much? I think there's some pressure there to do all the things, be at all of the things. And we are the only ones, I think, who can give ourselves the permission to to decide or be more strategic about what we go to, where we spend our energy and stuff like that. But I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. So I think all of this boils down to something I'm still really working on, which is decoupling my self-worth from my busyness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm very much aware of. And I'm very aware that this is why I've been struggling this last year. Uh, not just from, I mean, it, it sucks to lose income. It sucks to lose jobs. Like that's, that part sucks no matter what, but this, uh, this need to sort of be proving myself and still feel like I'm, I'm like pushing things forward. Like we were talking about, I, when that's gone, I, I it's like, I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I've known that I do this for a long, like I've known that I'm like this for a very long time, <laughs> very like type A when it comes to my, like yeah. getting things done and feeling accomplished and feeling successful. And those are all great feelings, but at the same time, my, like, I, I'm still a human person. 
who deserves time to rest, who deserves time to recover between projects and who is still like full of value and worth and merit without, without my work. Like if yeah. I just stopped working, I would still be a valuable human being. Mm, I'll say it again. I'm having to say this a lot of times like, until I fully internalize it. Right? I'm a valuable person without my composing work or mm-hmm. my writing work or anything. And mm-hmm. anyone listening, like that's true of you too, right? Right, right. We all, we're all worthy of, of time and rest and like feeling happy in our own bodies. That's yeah. a feeling we all deserve. Yes. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with how productive we are. Mm-hmm. But yes, so that's been the bigger struggle. Is well, it's an ongoing that. thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. both of those things coexist where you are, you know, you're you're excited about where you are in your career. And at the same time, you can recognize that you're like, I've got, I'm working on some things. I got, yes. you know, I'm, I'm st- still don't always get it the first go round on that, on that particular topic, but I'm practicing. And I think adopting a practicing mindset on so many things can be very healthy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And to to think of it, not as this changes, I I was talking about how I changed the way I set goals too. And I think that's very much reflected in this where it's just on the journey of being a creative person, how am I, like, where do I feel fulfilled? Where do I feel happy? What kind of art do I want to be making instead of I need to be earning X amount per year? I need to be. And those are, again, those are good. I think, like, I wouldn't change the way I've been doing things aside from granting myself a little more grace and ease Mm -hmm. if I could in the Mm -hmm. past. Mm -hmm. Um, but like all of that striving has served a purpose, but at the same time, now that I'm at a certain place in my career, I just think there's more room to relax. Yep. And I was going to say too, I, I, another thing I've learned, uh, like an actual strategy I've learned for creating that space has been to just ask people for more time and turn oh down things gosh, that wow. don't most people are willing to see you as a human being if you yeah. ask for an extension. If you say, I, I canceled, I was supposed to fly to a premiere that the crying on the floor week. Yeah. And yeah. I canceled it. It's the first time in my life I've canceled a premiere. I wrote about this for New Music Box yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, but I like I felt a lot of shame around that, yeah. around canceling and not, I think I was the there were like I forget how many composers were part of that project. There were like eight composers or something. And I was the only one who wasn't there. Yeah. At the same time, I was going, like I made a doctor's appointment and went on anxiety medication for the first time. And that helped a lot more than getting on a plane Mm -hmm. to Indiana and crying on the floor in a hotel room. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Serve anyone. (laughs) Well, and I think one of the things in there that I love thinking about is uh, there are, moments we we practice kind of pushing through in certain cases and there are moments when you're practicing recognizing that it's better to to maybe let something go I don't know if that's the right way to say that particular experience but to release that from from your plan you were like I was gonna do this plan sometimes it's more valuable to us to find a way to to push yourself through it right you're kind of like okay nope I really do care about the thing on the other side of this and and these feelings are temporary, it's okay. There are times where you're like, these feelings are much bigger than that. And they're not necessarily just temporary uncomfortability 
with whatever. And the thing on the other side of this is not more valuable than my mental health or my physical health. And, and I'm going to practice recognizing those things. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. That's, that's exactly <laughs> it. Because <laughs> I, I don't think that either one of us would disagree that being type A in those ways hasn't helped. I wouldn't say that we would say mm-hmm. that it hasn't helped us, right? It's right. like, we're like, yeah. And then here's the way that through all of those experiences, we started to refine and realize yeah. how it was, how we could do it, you know, more sustainably be healthier about it. Um, and yeah, I, I think both of us would gift that to our younger selves. Yes. <laughs> I, I still ask a question now too, that's, um, especially when I'm looking at a to-do list, the question of, does this really need to be done today, Mm -hmm. right now? And so often the answer is no, Mm -hmm. for so much of it, no matter how much I'm like, well, this is due really soon. And I like have to work on it, but do you like, do you actually have to, like what will fall apart if you don't do this thing? And if it's nothing, then it's perfectly fine to take that off of your plate. When you need it, and and so often when I do that, then I come back the next day, and then I'm ready to do the thing because I've mm-hmm. given myself some time to just be. Yeah. I I have like one more kind of formal question for you, but I wanted to ask a follow up question to what you just said about uh, you mentioned your assistant, but would you say that part of that looking at your to do list has also included asking for help sometimes, like being okay with, I don't have to do literally everything myself. I can ask somebody to be on my team for this. And I'm wondering if that's part of your experience. Yeah. And I've, I've had trouble to giving up the reins a little bit. Today's, <laughs> it's been very much like, like here, you're going to start doing this. And then like, here's one task in updating my website, which I have done myself for many, many years and enjoy doing. And then, okay, maybe you can update a bunch of things on my website. I'll hand over those reins. And then, like, should you be doing the PayPal invoices for something? Like, you should do one. Okay, now you can do all of them. Yeah. Like, it's it's been a it's been a gradual process <laughs> with letting go of my need. To well, and God bless your colleague for like going along with that and being like, yes, yeah, I'm here yes. for you. <laughs> She's great. Melanie. Her name is Melanie. Melanie. And she's wonderful. Uh, yes. Oh, Melanie. Um, <laughs> yes. It's setting, setting boundaries for myself too, in terms of things I just do not do. Mm-hmm. Specifically, uh, videos like this, like conversations where I can, <clears throat> I can put on my Zoom makeup and, you know, be in my office and we're talking. That's great. Like, I'm happy yeah. to do that. If it's a pre-recorded video, I think we might've even talked about this on the phone. If it's a pre-recorded video, I don't have a need to have a studio set up with good, like really good lighting, Mm -hmm. like video lighting, video camera setup, anything. I just don't do pre-recorded videos. And there's been a lot of demand for that. I've had a bunch of choirs ask me, can you make an introduction? Yes. Video so we can put it online. I'm like, it's going to take me so much time to do my makeup to pick an, not that I, I don't need to do my makeup, but like, I do need to do my makeup because I'm <laughs> breaking out a little bit because I hate pandemic and it's terrible for my skin, apparently. And like, where does the camera go? Where do the lights go? Yeah. That's like over and well over an hour of work that I just have 
literally zero interest in doing. Yeah. And so instead of view, this is, goes back to automation, right? Instead yep. of viewing that as I'm saying no every time and I'm coming up with a good reason to say no. And I'm, I'm just like, I don't do that. And so yep. I write back, I don't, I don't do this. Like, yeah. I, this is not something that I offer. Yeah. I'll write a little paragraph for you and you can use it in the video or you can read it. Someone yeah. can read it. Someone um, can read it. <laughs> I'm not You're going like, this that. sounds like a job for your board member. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else can do it. Yes. I love that. That's so great. Just, and boundaries about this, this is something I say yes to. This is just something I just don't do, you know? And that's yep. so, so helpful. So I'm, I'm going to ask a kind of our last, our last question, although I could talk to you all day. So like, likewise, so, <laughs> like, I'm like, we'll definitely be doing this again. Um, but so I believe deeply in the power of curiosity. And I think that curiosity can be a superpower. I'm wondering if you could talk about something, you know, that we haven't talked about yet that, that you're curious about at the moment. So I'm, I'm really in a lot of my work, I've been thinking about how to give agency back to performers. And I find this really interesting, especially when there's a conductor in place, because yeah. then I'm interested in giving agency to the conductor and agency to the performers yeah. who are still relying on the conductor, who's relying on me, the composer, and just thinking less of composing as a dictatorship, where mm -hmm. it's like, do what's on the page, do what I ask. And like, where can I build in flexibility, whether it's the tempo, like there's, there's some really obvious answers, like, like yeah. a fermata is a key example of the, the conductor has complete agency yes. over how long that fermata is held. But moments of aleatory where um, maybe the performers are, they're singing something at their own time and maybe they have to, maybe the words are set that they're singing, but the rhythm is completely fluid. Uh, or I'm just, I'm so intrigued by this. Like I haven't, I haven't, figured out the answers yet, but that's what being curious is all about, right? It's, exactly. it's having a question and just asking that question over and yes. over again. Yeah. So, I think that composers yeah. are intrinsically curious people because you hear, you know, you hear sounds or you, or you have ideas and then you're like, well, what would it sound like if we did this thing? <laughs> and so I love that you, you have this process, you have a creative process that allows you to ask questions all the time and then just say, what's it like? And I think, you know, vocalists, we get to do the same thing. I'm given, I'm given a score, but that's a jumping off point in a, where you as the composer, you're sharing your concept with me in this vehicle, in the score being the vehicle. And then from there, how, you know, what are the choices that I'm making with those things that the ones that are left up to me and you just get to explore, you get to get into it. So I love that. Oh, I'm I'm so excited to hear like where this is where this is going in your music. It's gonna be hmm, so good. <laughs> I have there's one movement of how to go on, which is this big acapella choral piece where the soloist gets to pick their own note every time they come to a cadence. Cool. And I I just want to do so much more of that. I just yeah. love like choose your own notes. <laughs> All the time. This, is, this is very much like our um our time period of like choose your own adventure books, like just coming yes. like in somewhere in the zeitgeist of our of ourselves yes. being like, yes, I need this. <laughs> I feel like the choose your own, I'm I'm thinking of um there's a, a brilliant book uh by Carmen Marie Machado called In the Dream House, which is a memoir, but it's like a, a 
I don't know how to describe it. It's every every chapter has a different trope that it's playing with. And one of them is, is choose your own adventure. And I just keep seeing the choose your own adventure theme pop up everywhere. Yeah, and I'm like, it's yeah. everyone who grew up with those books is yeah. like, the coolest yeah. idea of all time. <laughs> it so. is deep in our cultural DNA. Yes. <laughs> Psyche. Our, yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Dale, I am just so thrilled. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, can I have you tell our listeners where to find you on the internet, on the interwebs? You know, how do you, you know, if people wanted to reach out to you to say thank you for doing this, where where would you want them to kind of uh, shout you out? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram as at Dale Trumpler, just my name. Can you and that for us? Yes, so. it is D-A-L-E-T-R-U-M-B-O-R-E. Beautiful. And then same thing, daletrumbor.com. Yeah. And if you use the contact form, uh, it will it will make its way to me. It goes awesome. to me and my assistant, and I I sort of pick out, she helps yeah. me pick out which ones are Yay, which Melanie. Ones are <laughs> <laughs> Dale tasks. So I love I it. Right back. This is a Dale task. If you that's will. a Dale task. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And enjoy. We're doing this on the weekend, so enjoy the rest of your weekend. But I can't wait to see you in person, as I'm sure yes. a whole bunch of our listeners feel, and hopefully to interact with your music more and more and more. Thanks so much again for having me. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to this masterclass episode on Studio Class. Hey. Before you go, do you have a second? Will you take a screenshot of this episode and share it to Instagram with your takeaways? You can tag me there, at Mezzoinen. That's M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. It makes a huge difference when you share this podcast with your friends. Or even strangers, really. (laughs) So, with that in mind, I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening!